Thanks for finding us. This is a message recorded at Fairfax Assembly in Bakersfield, California. You can find out more at fairfaxassembly.com. Well, last week we talked about, Jesus talked about, listening. And in the story that he told, we call it the story of the soils, the different kinds of soil. Tino, I know that's a favorite of yours. It, it's really a story where he is encouraging us to listen slowly. In fact, he says, if you don't get that story, the story of the different kind of soil and the seed that goes into it, if you don't become good soil and you don't understand that story, you're not going to unlock the mystery of anything else I've got to say because it's about listening. And if we don't listen, we get nothing. Right? So last week was all about listening and listening slowly to the voice of Jesus. And I hope you've, you've done that this week. Listen slowly. This week, he will take us a little bit deeper. This week, he's going to take us a little step further. It's the next logical step after listening. It's the hard work without which listening becomes pointless, really. Let me give you an example of, of what I mean. Turn to uh, Mark chapter 7. And Jesus is going to, going to give us another lesson that's beyond listening. If you pick it up in verse 14, that's where we will pick it up. He's talking to a crowd, but really... The story starts at the top of the chapter because there are some Pharisees, some professionals, and some of the scribes, some of the people who know the law backward and forward, they have come around him and they have been sent as a delegation from the high bigwigs in Jerusalem. He's approached by this delegation of professionals and they have all kinds of questions and they're asking him questions and one of the questions they ask him in Verse 5 is, why do your disciples, your followers, Jesus, not follow all of the traditions that we advise and our elders advise should be followed? Chief among them, why do they not follow all of the food traditions? And we notice that they don't always wash their hands properly. Now we're not talking hygiene here, we're talking about a ritual purification that they insisted people go through. It was way beyond a little soap and water. But we notice that your people don't do that, Jesus. Please enlighten us about this. And Jesus, he deals with those professionals on the whole question of ritual purification and tradition and all of their rules and regulations. But he takes it a step beyond all of that. He, he dealt with them for sure. And it seems that while Jesus is dealing with the professionals, that the crowd that had gathered around them all, that they had courteously stepped back, they had stepped away as Jesus talks personally with the delegates, this delegation. And he does deal with them. And then, and, then, and here's where our story opens in 14, he calls the crowd back around him. 
They've stepped back and they've given the professionals their space and the courtesy they were due. But now Jesus calls the crowd back around him. And after he called the crowd to him again, he began saying to them, listen to me, all of you, everyone. What he's getting ready to do is something that is universal. It is for everybody. He says, listen to me, all of you, and understand. And there it is. There is the step beyond listening and even listening slowly. It's understanding. We're going to talk about understanding now. There's nothing outside of man, he says. And when he uses the word man throughout this passage, he's not just talking about males. Ladies, you're not off the hook. It's the Greek word anthropoi, which means men and women. There's nothing outside a person which can defile him or her. If it goes into him or her, but the things which proceed out of the person are what defiles. And then there's that familiar phrase, if anybody has ears to hear, let him hear. Listen to what I'm telling you. And when he had left the crowd and he entered the house, his disciples questioned him about this little bit of a parable. And he said to them, are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the person from outside, that's what the Pharisees were concerned about, cannot defile him or her, because it not, does not go into the heart, but into the stomach. If it comes from the outside, it only goes into the stomach and it is eliminated. Thus he declared, all foods clean. And he was saying, that which proceeds out of the person, that is what defiles the person. It's not what comes in from the outside, but it's what is already on the inside that is the defiling agent. He has already dealt with that issue with the scribes and the Pharisees in their private huddle, with that delegation but as he calls the crowd together, he will continue the same theme and he will give an even more direct reply. And that's what we've just seen from the lips of Jesus. And he will indicate what the source of real defilement is. It's deeper than things of the stomach. There is a deeper truth here than what he had shared with the delegates. And he shares it with the whole crowd. And it's this, that it's not what enters the body. It's what comes out of your heart. That's what defiles you. You see, we're talking now beyond listening, aren't we? Now we're talking understanding. And, and what must I understand that Jesus has said? Well, it's in verse 15. There's nothing outside the person that can defile him or her if it goes in, but the things which proceed out, those are what defile. What Jesus is saying is externals, externals don't make a person unclean. Internals do. You see, we have the idea that if I go around certain kinds of activities, if I, if I go around certain kinds of people, that will defile me. There used to be Christians that said, we don't cuss, and we don't chew, and we don't go with them that do. 
It's the externals that will defile me, that will make me unclean. But Jesus says, no, that's not the case. It's not the externals that make you unclean, it's the internals. So let's talk about those. Jesus is also saying in that 15th verse something about the problem that the scribes and the Pharisees had, but it's not exclusively their problem, and it didn't stay in their time. It's rampant and loose in our time, and it's this, that do-it-yourself purification doesn't work. Do-it-yourself purification will not work. Now, I may be in a very unique position to see that what Jesus is saying is absolutely true, but you have probably seen it too. In Jesus' day, there was an elaborate, outside of Scripture, it had nothing to do with the law of God. It was the law of people. People had had built up this elaborate system of how you got rid of defilement, how you got rid of personal uncleanness when it hit your life, when you were afflicted with it. When it happens, because it would happen, you would find yourself unclean, and they had come up with all kinds of rules and regulations, again, outside of what God had said. He had pretty much covered it. But they went beyond what he said, and and it become more important than what he said. And there were all of this do-it-yourself purification processes. We're surprised to find that that same thinking is still present today. And, and that's where I think I've seen it in the lives of people. There's so many people, even today, that have an idea that when I do something wrong, I can handle it myself. I'll make up for it. I will compensate. I will do something. I will take care of it myself. I will work extra hard. I will do something so that I can feel clean again. But I'll do it myself. And so that particular brand of Phariseeism, it's still with us today. We used to do a program called Faith. There are several here that remember that. And part of what we did in our faith training and in our faith practice is we would go out and we would encounter people cold turkey. And we would talk to them about the deepest things of life, about Christ and their need for Christ. And the way we would do it, one of the ways we would do it, we would lead into it with a a survey. It was a one-question survey. And we had it down so well that we knew that no matter what a person said, whatever answer they give, it would fit into one of, of four categories. That however they responded to the survey question, it would either A, be a faith answer, it would be the right answer. And we would know from the faith answer that they belonged to Jesus Christ and that they were a brother or sister. They could also give an I don't know, I just don't know answer to the question, or they could give an unclear answer to the question, or they could give a works answer to the question. The question was this. In your personal opinion, what do you believe it takes for a person to go to heaven? That was our leading question. That was our only question. And then they would answer. And sometimes it was unclear. They didn't know the answer. Or sometimes they would give a faith answer. And the faith answer would be 
Well, I believe that a person can know they're going to heaven because they have trusted in Jesus Christ alone. That's the correct answer. That was a brother or sister. But very often, people would give a works answer. Their answer would run something like this. And these many times as we tabulated the results, and we did this hundreds of times, we discovered that very often people that sit every day, every Sunday in, in the pews of churches are giving works answers. They don't know Christ. And a work answer would go something like this. Well, I believe that you can know you're going to heaven because you do good things, because you keep the Ten Commandments. Because I tithe, because I go to church, because I read the word, because I pray, because I witness, because I volunteer, because I help, then I can be sure that God is approving of me. A works answer. We're not talking the first century. We're not talking Pharisees. We're talking about our neighbors. We're talking about church attenders would give very often a works answer. How often I have seen people do this. I have even seen church people do this. You see, it is part of my job description. It's a part that some people don't like so well. It's part of my job description is, is to comfort the afflicted. But it's also part of my job description to afflict the comfortable. And sometimes when I'm pointing out to somebody, member of the church, a person who is a professing Christian, that things are not quite the way they should be. And maybe you've got some blind spots. Let me help you with that. And very often the pushback will be, well, you're on my case for that, but you need to know that I have done this and this and I have served the church this way and I've been faithful this way and I've given this much and I've served here and I've done that. A works answer. And what we're looking at when we're looking at works answers is we're looking at the same thing that Jesus was staring at. It's do-it-yourself purification. And do-it-yourself purification does not work. In fact, 700 years before Jesus was ever on the scene physically on this planet, Isaiah the prophet said that all of our righteousness, in other words, all of the best that we do, all of us at our very best, is like filthy rags. That the best of our righteousness in his sight is dirty. Imagine what our worst is like in his sight. You see, that's my problem with a popular phrase. We hear it in charity circles a lot. Oh, I want to do this because I have a sense that I want to give back. I have a real problem with that phrase. I want to give back. I, I, want, to, I want to do some kind of a repayment or maybe a prepayment for some of the bad things or the neglect that I've shown. I want to give back. And what we're talking there is nothing more than works. What we're talking about there is nothing more than do-it-yourself purification. And do-it-yourself purification doesn't work. No matter how hard you work it, it doesn't work. You can't get rid of your uncleanness and your faults and your failings by doing it yourself. I remember years ago, I was on a missions trip in Guatemala. Most of the time, I was based in a city called Antigua. But one day, some people from the area and some missions workers 
they said, we want to take you to a place way up in the hills. Now, I had already seen enough of Guatemala to know that there are a lot of people down there with a lot of guns. And it seemed like the more remote areas you got, the more guns. So I said, okay. And we went to a village way up in the hills. You had to wind a long way to get there through the jungle. A place called San Andres. And they took me to a building, a chapel-looking building. And the yard of the chapel was beat down dirt. Wasn't anything attractive. And there were people in various stages of drunkenness and, and various stages of being high and coming out that were laying around this dirt yard, around little fires and things like that. Strange. We walked up the little walkway into the chapel. The chapel had no seats. It was roughly the size of this building. But it had no seats, but it did have a bunch of tables that were about waist high to the Guatemalans, which meant they were kind of low for us. But they were little tin tables that were, that were fixed into the ground. And they were just little narrow tables. They weren't something you would sit at, but you stood at. And on all of those tables... There was wax drippings everywhere and bits and pieces of candles, all different colors. And at some tables, there were people standing and they had various colored candles, small candles that were burning. But in front on the platform was what caught your attention. There was a glass case and there was a seated figure, a statue in there. That was San Andres. And he looked for all the world dressed in black with a great big mustache he looked for all the worlds like a, an 1890s riverboat gambler kind of a guy. Kind of a menacing face, but he was seated on this throne-like thing. And people were approaching San Andres there in his glass case. And at the feet of the case, they would lay bundles of flowers, but sometimes bundles of cigar or bags of dope or bottles of liquor. And then they would move across to the platform. And on the platform, facing the people and facing those tables and facing those candles, there was a witch doctor. And the witch doctor, as people would approach, would douse them with liquor. And if they were men, they would remove their shirts and they would rub the liquor all over their bodies. And then they would go out and they would stop by and give some money at the door for various colored candles, then they would burn them there on the tables and some would go outside into the yard and get high and burn them. What a strange sight. I didn't understand it at all until somebody explained it. That what they're doing is they're approaching San Andres, asking for his grace and asking for his favor and asking for his protection and the protection of the witch doctor because they're planning to commit a sin. They're planning later that day to sleep with their neighbor's wife. Or they're planning to harm somebody. Or to rob somebody. Or to break into a home. Or to injure somebody. Or to kill somebody. And they're asking this phony saint that he would watch over them and keep them safe while they do their bad deeds. That's what that's all about. And the candles are color-coded to the different kind of sins you could commit. That's what was going on. 
That's an extreme form of what Jesus was talking about. Do-it-yourself purification. How many believe that the people burning candles at the shrine of San Andres received the purification that they wanted? They did not. They only got closer to hell than they were before. That's all. And that's the way it always is with self-purification because self-purification doesn't work. Now, when Jesus points this out in verse 15, he points this out to the Pharisees and he points this out to the scribes and he points this out to the crowd. The crowd seem to receive it well. But the professionals, Matthew says when he tells this story, the professionals were much offended by what he said. That self-purification is not where it's at. That self-purification does not work. And that externals are not what make you unclean, but the internals are what make you unclean. It's not all of your rituals that are necessary and your do-it-yourself ways don't work. They're offended by that, deeply offended by that. That do-it-yourself purification doesn't work. That struck a nerve with them, a great nerve with them. It offended them. And when people hear that today, that your self-purification methods, you're making it up, you're giving back, it doesn't work. We're offended too because it offends our intelligence. We have it figured out. If I say something ugly to my wife, if I mistreat my family, well, then I take them out to dinner or I bring her flowers and it's all okay. It doesn't work like that. Do-it-yourself purification doesn't work, but that fact that it, we're told it doesn't work, we've got it all figured out, and it should work. And when he tells us it doesn't work, it offends our intelligence. It offends our habits. I mean, we grew up with phrases like, you did that to me, now take it back. Take it back. Make it right. Or, or you did that to me, you're going to pay. We grow up with that. That's our default position. That's the way it is. That's the way of the world. That's the way we always think, you see. That's the approach that most reasonable people take, is that I can do something. I, I can purify myself, and I can get back to where I feel good about it, and I can do it all by myself. That's our habit. That's our default. That's the way most reasonable people approach our problems. But let me remind you, Jesus is calling us to be members of a kingdom that makes no sense. And that doesn't make sense in his kingdom that we would do it ourselves. It offends our intelligence. It offends our habits when he says it doesn't work. And it, it offends our preferences we prefer to do it ourselves. And let me tell you why we prefer to do it ourselves. It's because then we stay in charge. When you have to trust God, you're not in charge. And that offends us. Now there's a pivot in verse 18. And he said to them, because they come to him, his immediate followers after this little mini demonstration, this little parable. They come to him with questions about its meaning, and he's talking about understanding, and he wants them to understand. And so he says, are you 
So lacking in understanding also, it's a given that the others don't understand, but are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes out of a person cannot defile them? It's not what goes into the person. It's what comes out of the heart. Don't you understand that? That's the pivot there. And it's a question, do you not understand? Not of surprise. Jesus is not saying, how could you? How could you not get this? How could you fall for the self-purification myth? It's not a question of surprise, but it is a gentle rebuke from Jesus. I'm not surprised that the knot-headed Pharisees don't get it. But I'm a little surprised that you people don't get it. It's a gentle rebuke. And he completes his thought in verse 20, and he was saying, that which proceeds out of the person, that is what defiles the person. And then he launches into a catalog. We didn't read it. Verse 21, 22, 23. It's what I would call a catalog of destruction. Just look at what he has to say. He says, For from within, out of the heart of men, again, men and women, from within, that interior space, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting, wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these evil things proceed from within and defile the whole person. Well, we read it in English. You do know that your New Testament was originally not in English. And I'm looking now at the original language, and you get some extra insight here. This catalog of sins, this catalog of destruction. He's talking about the heart. He mentions the heart, the word cardia, and that's more than the muscle in our chest. The heart is the very seat of our being. It's the source of our feelings. It's the source of our thoughts, our affections, our aspirations. It's, that's where our actions begin, is in the heart. And that is the seat of our moral defilement. That's where we are unclean. And Christ talks about it. He says, from within, from out of the heart... In fact, he says, from out of the heart of man, anthropoi, from out of the heart of men and women, not from food, your defilement comes. And then he catalogs them, and there are 13 of them, count them. They're vices, they're attitudes. The first is evil thoughts, evil thoughts. Those are the things that are morally bad that we entertain in our mind. That is the source of all evil action, starts in our mind. It's out of morally evil thinking. That moral evil activity takes place. Don't kid yourself. And the next is adulteries. That's the illicit sexual activities that violate the marriage vow. And then there's fornication. It's, it's, it's the word, Greek word, pornea. Pornea. And fornications, pornea, any type of unlawful, any type of unlawful sexual acts. And this is a broader word than adultery. Because adultery is committed only by married people. And then there's murders. It's, it's denoting premeditated homicides. We're not talking about an accident. We're not talking about soldiers on the battlefield. We're talking about a premeditated crime. Now, there are nine more that are added to the list. 
There's the word for thefts. And, and that fits in always in Scripture with adulteries and murders because it's also a prohibition of the Ten Commandments. Thefts. Then there's covetousness. In fact, the, the word in Greek is plural. It means covetous desires. It's, it's, it's covetous desires. It's something that's done a lot and over and over. And, and, it, and it denotes cravings and self-gratification. And often it's got a special reference to sexual lust. And the Tenth Commandment is also against covetousness. It's talking about wickedness, wickednesses, actually, because it's plural. And that's expressing an act of deliberate, purposeful maliciousness, large or small. And that's the last of seven plurals. And then in the original, there, there are six singular terms. And the first is deceit, which got, it has the underlying idea of lure or bait, you see, it's denoting trickery and cunning and treachery. And then there's lasciviousness, sensuousness, or wantonness is an old English word. In other words, things that are shocking to public decency. It comes from where? The heart. It, it characterizes a person who, who, who gives unrestrained rein to his depraved impulses. And then there's a phrase an old Hebrew phrase, an evil eye. It means stinginess or a grudging attitude or envy. It comes from the heart. Blasphemy. Almost a direct translation from the original. Blasphemia. Blasphemy. We think we know what that is, but blasphemy is, is, an, is injurious speech. It's abusive speech, either against God or people. Blasphemy, because people are made in the image of God. It carries that idea. And then there's pride, which is the deadliest of the deadly sins. And that suggests arrogance. That's an evil where you consider yourself better than somebody else. And finally, last on the list, foolishness. And I know why it's last on the list. It describes a, a disposition where somebody does not know God and has no desire to know God. They don't know God because they don't want to know God. And that term is last because it summarizes the entire list. To sin, to hold on to sin, to practice sin, is to play the fool's part. Now, those are serious. And they are not coming to us from outside. They come from inside. I can prove it to you. How many would like to have your deepest thoughts? Let me put it this way. How many would give me the right to somehow, if I had a machine, hook you up to it that would flash your deepest thoughts on a jumbotron? So we know what we're talking about, don't we? And we know that we can be guilty. And we know that that defilement, it lies deep inside of us. Because the last thing we want is to have it broadcast. But it's there. There's that catalog of destruction. These are internals. 
These do. These do what? The merely external things cannot do to your spirit. The externals don't make you unclean, you see. Internals do. The Pharisees thought that defilement worked its way in from the outside. They were completely wrong, completely backward. Jesus reverses that. And he's saying that true defilement, true uncleanness comes where? It comes from inside, from within. See, inside of us is the self. You know what the self is? The self is our interior space. That place that is uniquely us. An interior space plus memory, that makes a self. That's what self is. That is the place that is defiled. That space. Now, as was his custom, Jesus gives a private interpretation, and that's what we've just looked at. That's this catalog. And the problem he's saying with this catalog of things that come from inside of us that we never, never want to have broadcasts is they destroy your relationship with others. Right? Even if you're just thinking it. They are corrosive enough to destroy relationships with others. They destroy your relationship to the truth because once we begin to act out of these ugly things inside of us, we can't tell top from bottom. And black looks white. And false looks true. And we're completely spun around. And our relationship with the truth is destroyed. And this catalog If we dabble in these and allow them to bubble to the surface, they also destroy your relationship with your God. There used to be a tract we used to use called the Bridge to Life. And and it, it was a cartoon. And on one side, there were two cliffs and a bottomless pit between. The bottomless pit was labeled death. That's the result of sin. Death, we die. We get separated from God. We get separated from from others. We separate ourselves from our own spirit by sin. We warp ourselves and everything around us by sin. And so the, the bottomless pit, that was sin. And on one side was holy God, and the other cliff, separated by that pit, was sinful man. And in the cartoons... They would put different bridges, planks that would go across trying to bridge that gap. One of them was morality. People would would try to be as good as they could possibly be, and then that would reunite them with God. But in the cartoon, the plank was short, and you couldn't get there from here. You couldn't get holy God back with sinful man with morality, doing right things. There were things like Religion, it was short. There were several things, all short. The only thing that bridged the gap, that crossed the divide of death, which is separation between God and man, the cross. It was the only thing big enough. That was the bridge to life, you see. Calvary did that. 
What all of these things do in destroying our relationship with others and with the truth and with God. What Jesus does on the cross, it restores all of that. Sin had done that, but Jesus does something completely different and reverses it. The reason he shrieks out in pain on the cross is because our sin, your sin, my sin, is laid on him to the point that he becomes sin. And it separates him from a holy God. The cross did that. The cross dealt with those things. The cross did that. You know, how many more stories do we have to hear about billionaires who secretly live miserable lives, never satisfied, never fulfilled, and die lonely? How many more stories do we have to hear about celebrities and athletes and politicians who, who have all of the sexual exploits they could ever have and more, but they're unhappy. They're unhappy and they're miserable. Those are all the things that the catalog of sin brings, that the catalog of destruction which starts inside of us. Let me, let me end on a little cheerier note than that. I, uh, on the way here this morning, early this morning, I wanted to stop and get something to drink, and I, I thought, yeah, I'm, I'm going to get something healthy, okay? And I've been hearing about and read a couple articles about beet juice. So I thought, okay, I'll see if I can find some beet juice. So I found some. Uh, it's called Daily Roots. Excellent source of vitamins A and C, and it's got beets, lots of beets. Um, in fact, it's mostly beets. It says, ingredients, uh, purple beets, purple carrots, purple sweet potatoes, purple watercress, purple people eaters. It's got everything purple. I thought that's the thing I need. So I, I, I got it, <clears throat> I got back in the truck, uncapped it, and as I started the truck, I set it in the cup holder. Now I'm telling you the truth, I just barely sat it in the cup holder. And it was like I'd slammed it down. And it, it became like a force of nature, like a geyser. And this purple juice shot all over the place, all over my seat, all over the window, I got it all over my hand. In fact, it stained my hand. And I thought, if it stained my hand, this stuff is dye. This isn't a drink. If it stained my hand, what's it done to my seats? I mean, what happened to the, the law of physics, you know? Every action calls for an equal and opposite reaction. All I did was tap it, and it just exploded. I mean, it went out the window and hit a guy three cars over. By the way, it's still stained my hand. If I shook your hand today... You got beet juice on you. Anyway, it went all over the place. And I thought, nuts. How am I ever going to clean this dye out of the seats? And then I, consolation prize, I thought, but at least you got some tasty beet juice. I took a drink of it. This stuff is nasty. <laughs> I didn't finish it. I dumped it out. You can find where I dumped it out because it'll be there 10 years from now. It's stained the concrete, I'm sure. 
Well, all that to say that these things in this catalog that come from inside of us are very much like that. Promise much. But at the end of it, all we've got is a stain as a reminder. All we've got is a disaster. And we get none of the pleasure. That's the problem with do-it-yourself purification. It cannot deal with these things. The only one who can deal with these things is Jesus Christ. That's why I say, how many more billionaires, how many more unhappy celebrities dying young do we have to hear about? These things are not what brings satisfaction. Only destruction. Only destruction. You know, typically, dealing with these things, allowing God to deal with these things, the way we tell it, the way we tell the gospel typically runs something like this. But we were so bad off and our sin was so bad, mine in particular, that Jesus had to die in our place. He had to take the rap for it. And then he grants us forgiveness. That's typically the way we tell the gospel. It's sort of true, but it's sort of so lacking in the rest of the story that it's not quite true. It's almost a distortion to say that is the gospel because it's so much more what God does. There's a famous painting from the 15th century. It's called The Hospitality of Abraham. And it's the artist's depiction of that story in Genesis where Abraham, Father Abraham, lounging beside his tent, looks away across the way and he sees three figures coming toward him. It is, in fact, the Lord. We forget that God is relationship, that He is Trinity. He is three in one. And the three in one is approaching him and Abraham sees it as three people. Father, Son, and Spirit. No kidding, Abraham, he knows he's being visited by God. And so after he greets the Lord in this form, he runs and he, and he tells his wife, get some bread ready, fresh bread, use the finest flour. And Sarah begins the preparation. He runs out to the stables and he tells his people, select the very best young animal and slaughter it and prepare it and serve it. And they get up some side dishes, some curds and some milk and some other things. And he serves it to the Lord in the form of these three guests. But Abraham doesn't feel like he should eat with them. Read the careful Carefully read the story. He stands a ways off in the shade of a tree and he watches as God enjoys the meal that he has given. That's what this picture, this 15th century painting by a master is depicting. Now there's some people that have a problem with the painting. Oh, thou shalt not have any graven images. That's not what it's about at all. Stop being a simpleton. When I look at that painting, it's a beautiful painting to me. 
It's, it's the kind of painting that you could go back to over and over and over again. And if you're not careful, it's the kind of painting that could take you to Christ. Because he has assigned colors to each of the persons of the Trinity who are there. And they are in fellowship. You can tell by the expressions on their face that they love each other, that there's perfect harmony, that they are in perfect company with one another. And that while they are sharing this common meal in a common dish on the table in front of them, that they could not be happier. And the colors of the Father, he assigns gold, and the colors of the Son, blue and green for the Holy Spirit. He's put a lot of thought into it, and he's thought it through, and, and green for the Spirit of God, because that is a picture of what God does, what the Holy Spirit does. He takes light and turns it into life, just like the miracle of photosynthesis, and so the Holy Spirit green. The Holy Spirit is gesturing in the picture because all three are seated around the table, but there is an empty fourth seat at the table, and the Holy Spirit is gesturing. Now, on the front of that painting, where the table is depicted, there is a square that is very strange. It's dark, and it looks like something's missing, and it, it took art historians a long time to figure out what had been there. A mirror had originally been there, long since fallen off. The artist had placed a mirror there. You know why? So that when you stood in front of the picture, the Holy Spirit was gesturing for you to take a seat at the table. You see, it's a whole lot more than the way we tell the gospel. See, there is a perfect relationship within God. In His nature, there is Father, Son, and Spirit, but they're not separate. They work together. They love together. They are complete together. They have joy one for another. It's total harmony. And they, they have different functions and different roles, but, but they all make room for each other. They never get in each other's way. They never step on each other's toes. And for that reason, people a long time ago, they began to describe what they saw there as choreography, as the great dance. They call it the perichoresis. In fact, that's where we get our word choreography, dance, from. And they say, within God himself, there is this wonderfully intricate, beautiful dance that is taking place. That's all theirs. But what Jesus is doing when he comes to the earth is he's saying, listen, get ready to have your mind blown apart. He's saying, we want you to join this dance. We want you in what we've got. He knows who we are. He knows how we think. He knows that catalog that is deep inside of us. But he says, I'll fix it if you'll let me just join the dance. That's incredible. That's more than praying a sinner's prayer. That's more 
than just trying to do good. We're invited into what they've got. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You've been listening to a slightly inspired message from Fairfax Assembly, a different kind of church in Bakersfield, California. Find out more at www.fairfaxassembly.com.